Hydrogen is the first element on the periodic table with an atomic number of one. It's also the most abundant chemical substance in the known universe, of the matter we can detect and measure anyway, making up around three-fourths of all non-dark matter mass. It should be no surprise, then, that it's also quite abundant here on Earth, in its pure state, at a standard temperature and pressure level. It has no color, odor, or taste, and it's not toxic, though it is combustible, which is why it's fortunate that most of the hydrogen on Earth is not gaseous, but instead part of a multitude of compounds with other elements, the most well-known of which is probably water, which is the casual name for H2O, which means a compound made up of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. And water covers about 71% of the surface of the planet, primarily as oceans, seas, and rivers, but also in glaciers, ice caps, and in groundwater. We also find H2O in its gaseous, rather than liquid form, in the air, as vapor. All of which is to say there's a whole lot of hydrogen all over the place, and not just in water, but blended with other elements and substances, including organic living things. It's fairly ubiquitous. It is not ubiquitous as an isolated element, however. In its standard temperature, standard pressure form, H2, it tends to quite quickly either drift off into space or meld with some other substance. And that's only if it's somehow separated from an existing blended state to begin with. Hydrogen doesn't exist on Earth in isolation, with rare exceptions. Thus, hydrogen is generally considered to be an energy carrier, like oil, coal, electricity, or a coiled spring. Basically, anything that you can apply energy to, and then store that energy in for future use, is an energy carrier. Oil is made up of the stored energy from ancient organic life, and a coiled spring is made up of stored energy from the arm of the person who compressed it. You exert muscle power to condense the spring, and that same power is then released later when the spring unfurls, when it is sprung. Hydrogen, in its natural, combustible, gaseous form, is put in the same category because it doesn't tend to take that form unless we expend energy to make it. The energy it is storing is typically from some kind of hydrocarbon. As of 2020, around 95% of global hydrogen production involves some kind of fossil fuel use. A process called steam reforming, for instance, requires that you heat up methane to very high temperatures, separating it into hydrogen molecules and carbon monoxide molecules. And depending on the quality of the feedstock used, you'll typically get 9 to 12 tons of CO2, carbon dioxide, for every one ton of hydrogen you produce in this way. The other most common hydrogen production methods have similar downsides in terms of the toxic output on the back end, but also the energy requirements on the front end. Heating the methane up to such high temperatures requires a great deal of energy unto itself, and that energy, typically, also comes from the burning of fossil fuels. So this is a fairly polluting method of generating hydrogen at this point in time. 
One alternative to this production method is what's called electrolysis, which involves using electricity to break water apart into hydrogen and oxygen molecules. This approach is relatively efficient and far cleaner than steam reforming, but it also requires a great deal of energy up front to split the water, which, because of how the majority of electricity is produced today, typically means a lot of fossil fuel burning. Also, the industrial capacity for this method is not as scaled up and cost-efficient as that of steam reforming, so at the moment, steam reforming is generally cheaper in most parts of the world. That said, if the energy required to do electrolysis can be generated by clean sources, there are quite a few benefits to changing the industry over, even disregarding the environmental impact of the current paradigm. Electrolysis production can be done on-site, where the hydrogen will eventually be used, for instance, which is a stark contrast to steam reforming, which generally requires that the components involved be shipped from place to place at different points in the process. As global governments and economies begin to reinvest in greener energy generation technologies, there's a good chance that we'll see more electrolysis and similar production mechanisms built alongside those cleaner energy systems, which would allow for more production of hydrogen without the higher costs and without the toxic byproducts. What I'd like to talk about today is why having more hydrogen on hand at industrial scales could be a game-changer for some industries and use cases, and how the race to implement such infrastructure is really beginning to take off in some parts of the world. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled Hydrogen Wars Pit Europe versus China for $700 billion business. As I mentioned in the intro, hydrogen that is produced on an industrial scale is typically generated using fossil fuels as the power source, burning oil or natural gas or coal to generate sufficient heat to break apart methane, for instance. Unfortunately, this process is highly polluting, with existing oil refining and chemical production facets of the hydrogen industry producing as much CO2 annually as the whole of the United Kingdom and Indonesia combined. This piece is centered around the emerging industry for hydrogen produced at an industrial scale that uses clean energy sources instead, primarily solar, hydro, geothermal, and wind power. One argument for converting green energy into what we might think of as energy stored in pure hydrogen form is that it's often better at some applications than comparable straight-up electrical methods of energy storage, like batteries, or energy that is directly fed into power grids, which may or may not need that level of energy at that particular moment. This is especially true of applications that require a great deal of heat, like producing heat for homes in the winter but also for high-energy combustion-related applications, like rocket fuel. Hydrogen can also be utilized by fuel cells, which are a bit like a battery, but which use hydrogen as a fuel, combined with air, to provide power. And these fuel cells have been built into cars, but also into much larger vehicles like submarines. 
They can also be used as a power source or backup power source for buildings. There's also some latent benefit in having a variety of fuel types for all sorts of purposes, because that variety can improve systemic resiliency. There are arguments to be made that although hydrogen is combustible and tricky to transport, you usually have to compress it into giant tanks and then haul those tanks with big trucks if you want to get a stockpile of the gas from one place to another. It could be argued that this difference in how it's transported and in its attributes could be an advantage in some situations. For instance, if most or all electrical power lines or substations are down due to weather, an earthquake, or an electromagnetic pulse weapon, it might make sense to have hydrogen-based infrastructure in place so that people can still stay warm in the winter, and so that some vehicles can still be on the roads available for alternative emergency use. There are other arguments for the utilization of hydrogen as a power source, though, beyond emergency and backup applications. In our vehicles, for instance, they could serve as a bridge fuel between the internal combustion engine generation of vehicles and the fully electric future that we're seeing the beginnings of today. Internal combustion vehicle engines can be converted to utilize hydrogen gas as a fuel source instead of typical petroleum-based fuels. It's not a super simple or inexpensive process, according to a guide provided to car fleet operators by the organization that represents hydrogen producers, a typical internal combustion engine will need to have its valves and valve seats hardened, stronger connecting rods, non-platinum-tipped spark plugs, a higher-voltage ignition coil, fuel injectors that are designed for gas instead of a liquid, a larger crankshaft damper, stronger head gasket material, a modified intake manifold, a positive-pressure supercharger, and a high-temperature engine oil. That said, such modifications will almost always be less expensive than buying an entirely new car, and if a stronger market were created for hydrogen fuel, it's thinkable that the market for modifying existing vehicles to utilize hydrogen instead of petroleum could flourish, and prices would go down. That would save a lot of people a lot of money, and it would also prevent a whole lot of waste, as otherwise there's a good chance that most of those cars would just end up in a scrap heap, all those materials and all that work wasted, rather than upcycled and repurposed, able to use newer, cleaner fuel, as long as that hydrogen was generated using clean energy sources, at least. If such a mid-ground future were to emerge, though, there's a good chance that government subsidies would be required to keep hydrogen fuel costs low, at least in the beginning. Hydrogen costs substantially more to produce than petroleum fuels in essentially every case, and though there's a good chance that green hydrogen fuel could be produced on scale and cheaper eventually, for a good long while, it will be the more expensive option compared to both traditional petroleum fuel and compared to charging up an electric car's battery. It may, then, be leapfrogged by straight-up electric vehicles before that hydrogen economy can be built, which would reduce its impact on the consumer and commercial transportation industries. Even then, though, it would still have a good deal of potential for other applications, like the aforementioned heating of homes and use as a highly combustible, far cleaner fuel for rockets. And it is a whole lot cleaner. 
The main byproduct of generating energy from hydrogen is water, because typically what happens is you heat up hydrogen, it bonds with oxygen in the air, and that gives you H2O, water. The big picture concept to remember is that it's not hydrogen itself that makes hydrogen fuels more polluting than they need to be. It's the generation of hydrogen as a separate element, separating it from other stuff to get its pure form, which is the state in which it's most useful. If we had a bunch of hydrogen just lying around in its H2 form, we'd be good to go. But because we need to separate it from other things first to make it useful as a fuel, we typically have to expend energy to get it, which today typically means burning fossil fuels, which again is why it's considered to be an energy carrier rather than a naturally occurring source of energy. Interestingly, there was a time back in the early 2000s when it seemed like hydrogen might be the next big thing, particularly in the United States, as some politicians had started to promote it as a means of breaking away from our dependencies on foreign governments for oil, which had been a major problem in the United States for a long time, as it directly impacted the government's ability to do foreign policy as it wanted, because it left the United States very vulnerable to economic coercion from states that we wanted to coerce instead. The hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, of shale oil deposits in the United States, which basically meant using a relatively new method of extracting oil from previously difficult-to-utilize fossil fuel deposits, made the United States a net oil exporter, rather than one of the biggest importers of oil. Meaning, we were extracting and refining gobs of oil, becoming in just a few decades one of the biggest oil producers on the planet. And that turnaround left hydrogen fuel on history's cutting room floor, a big what-if, because we no longer needed a way out of that net importer, reliant on oil-rich countries for our infrastructure to keep functioning situation. But the technologies used and refined during that earlier period still live on, and any country that decides to further invest in this collection of technologies will find they have a fairly stable, if still incomplete, foundation to build upon, due to that period of investment and investigation, and because of the investments made by vehicle manufacturers, chemical companies, and governments elsewhere around the world, especially in parts of Asia and Europe, in the years since. Now that brings us back to the article in Bloomberg, which is about a fairly frantic race between hydrogen fuel companies in Europe and China. In both regions, companies that were previously puttering along at a steady pace have suddenly received massive $100 million-plus investments in their production and capacity, in both cases focusing on clean production of hydrogen fuel in order to flesh out the region's dominance in a space that, though mostly ignored until recently, seems primed to be at least a portion maybe a significant portion, of the emerging global green energy economy in the coming decades. Part of what's held investments in this space back thus far has been the aforementioned expense of producing hydrogen, especially at scale. Even using fossil fuel-based energy to produce the gas, it's been a pricey undertaking, and that's even more true if you choose to use hydro, wind, solar, or geothermal energy sources instead of more polluting options. It's long been the case, then, 
that only specialty uses would make sense as a market for this fuel, and as a result, the production capacity has stayed quite small. The writing on the wall in many places around the world right now, though, is that governments are willing to subsidize industries and businesses that are able to help them meet their carbon neutrality promises, and those that are able to reinforce their energy independence which is vital for China, for the same reason it's typically been vital for the United States, and is vital for the European Union, because the EU has long been dependent on Russia for its natural gas energy resources, which is a type of fossil fuel, and therefore not clean burning, but also one of the few inexpensive means many EU countries have of heating up their homes and providing power to their cooking appliances. The potential for such governmental investments has led to a resurgence in private investment as well, and that's meant a surge in the resources available to those working in this space to expand their capacity. Both China and the EU are in excellent positions to both reinforce their own energy infrastructure for that coming changeover to clean energy, and to capture the global market, or a significant portion of it, for that changeover. And that means more resiliency and stability internally and the potential to become the energy superpower or one of just a few energy superpowers in the near future, if they're lucky and if they play their cards right. Transitioning from natural gas to hydrogen for heating and energy purposes likely wouldn't be straightforward and it would require quite a bit more adjustment than just changing over an internal combustion engine in a car to work with hydrogen. Regions that still utilize older metal pipes for their gas, for instance, would need to replace them, all of them, likely with something like polyethylene, because hydrogen can react with older metals and cause them to weaken and crack. Likewise, many appliances would need to be replaced or adjusted to work with the new gas, which could be a boon for appliance manufacturers, some of which have already started to develop made-for-purpose versions of their products, in case such a switch becomes a reality, but it would be less likely to please consumers who would then need to replace or alter their reliable old ovens or heaters, or that fancy new stove they just bought, though they would likely do so with the financial and perhaps practical aid of their governments in most cases. And any such transition would almost certainly take place over the course of years, perhaps many years, by necessity. At the moment, Europe is considered to be in the lead in terms of the economic and legislative underpinnings for such a switch. They have the most expansive and well-utilized carbon trading system in the world right now, and seemingly the most support for their plans to aggressively cut emissions from their citizenry. China, though, is making huge investments and recently claimed that they would become carbon neutral by 2060, which would be a massive undertaking for any country, but even more so, a country that is so highly populated, sprawling, and rapidly developing. The most movement in this space, at the moment, is happening in the world of electrolyzer construction, an electrolyzer being the mechanism that breaks water apart into hydrogen and oxygen, freeing up that hydrogen to be used as fuel in this way. Large-scale electrolyzers are thus being built alongside new green energy infrastructure, like wind farms and dams and solar panel arrays, 
so that the energy being generated by the turbines can be immediately utilized to generate hydrogen if they so choose, which dramatically reduces the complexity and energy loss they would otherwise suffer if the electrolyzers were built far from the sources of energy they require to function. It's also an alternative means of storing additional energy that they don't need at the moment that they can then utilize later by burning that hydrogen. Since late 2019, European electrolyzer company stocks have more than tripled in value on average, and electrolyzer output for European companies has been increasing tenfold every few years on average. At the moment, though, China is the biggest manufacturer of electrolyzer components, and the finished electrolyzers themselves as well, due to their lower costs for both the necessary raw materials and the labor required to put them together. As with many other technologies, it's suspected that China will be able to capably utilize this know-how, these supply chains, and this infrastructure to increase their internal production efforts so that they catch up with Europe within very short order. Perhaps as quickly as just a few years, though maybe a bit longer than that, depending on how the regulatory and economic winds blow. As for the rest of the world, while Japan and South Korea are both making an effort to build their local hydrogen economies, primarily for the purpose of powering large trucks, trains, and airplanes, the United States hasn't really done much of anything in this space since the early 2000s, even though a great deal of infrastructure for doing so technically already exists in-country. The boom in shale oil fracking essentially killed off the appetite for hydrogen as a consumer vehicle fuel source over a decade ago, and the attention paid to electric vehicles further reduced public opinion of, or even awareness of, hydrogen fuel options that exist within that industry and others in the U.S., which means, again, for both the EU and China, this is a fairly blue ocean that they're entering in terms of competition. And if either one can be the first to get their infrastructure in place and some deals signed and filed away, they will be in a very good spot should hydrogen prove to be the pillar it seems capable of becoming in the emerging green energy economy which would be incredibly profitable for them, both in terms of money and influence, even if it proves to be more of a secondary or tertiary energy pillar, rather than the primary one. The book that I'd like to recommend today is entitled From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death, by Caitlin Dowdy. This book was written by a mortician, and she does an excellent job describing how different cultures that she's visited deal with death, in terms of the death itself, but also in terms of the body, in terms of dealing with our feelings about the dead, in terms of dealing with the concept of death. It's a fairly broad exploration, definitely not complete. I don't think any book on this subject could be complete, but it's a fairly broad exploration of a bunch of different methods of dealing with this incredibly difficult and painful topic. And the variety of different approaches is a bit stunning, but also inspiring in a way, to the point where it's even maybe a bit of a relief 
because it demonstrates that there's no one correct universal way to deal with death. And that means perhaps that we're a bit liberated to figure out our own way of dealing with it, and that's okay. And that we can perhaps look around to other people around the world and find something that suits us and the way that we tend to think about it, even if within our own cultures we don't necessarily have a sensibility about it that fits. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of From Here to Eternity by Caitlin Dowdy. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript of this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.